Well, it's good to see you today. Just as we prepare to uh, face this storm that's coming our way, um, I thought we would open today with a prayer for fair weather, which seems to be appropriate today. So let's go ahead and bow our heads as we turn to God's Word in this study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. This is a, a colic for fair weather or for rain. O God, Heavenly Father, who by thy Son, Jesus Christ, has promised to them that seek first thy kingdom and thy righteousness all things necessary to their bodily sustenance, send us, we beseech thee, in this our necessity, such favorable weather or such moderate weather that we may receive the fruits of the earth to our comfort and to thine honor through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as Rachel may have mentioned, for those of you who are joining us late, um, we are going to take a two-week recess from this class. We will not have class next week or the following week, which is Holy Week. We just need next week to get ready. We've got a, a service every day of the week, beginning on Palm Sunday, the whole way through Easter. And so there's a lot of preparation that has to take place. And then, of course, the following week is Holy Week itself. So we will take a break for next week and the week following, but we will start back up again um, week of Easter. So just keep that in mind. If you know of anybody who's not joined us today, we'll send out a notice. But nevertheless, if you see somebody, please remind them that we're taking a, a brief recess for the next two weeks. But today we are turning to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 21, and we're going to read through uh, verse 26 today. We may quit a little bit early. I have decided to close the church office just to give people an opportunity to get on the road and get home. I expect that the traffic may be heavy, given the fact that the schools are closing early and everything, so I want to get the staff an opportunity to get home. My commute's not all that bad. I can simply walk down the street, but that's not true for those who live in North Charleston and other places. So if we finish up a little early today, that will be the reason. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21, Paul is writing, and he says this, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This particular section of Philippians contains one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, one that many people are familiar with. That's Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's an extraordinary statement by the Apostle Paul. And it's a very important statement for this reason in particular. It is a succinct statement of the essence of Christianity. This is really what Christianity is all about. This is not only what it was for Paul personally, but it really is for every Christian. The heart and soul of Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ. John Stott, uh, the English um, evangelical pastor, pastor for many years at All Souls, All Souls Church in Langham Place, London, wrote a wonderful little book called Christian Basics. And in the introduction to that book, 
he said that there are many misconceptions out there in the world as to what Christianity really is. He said there were three misconceptions in particular. He said if you were walking down the street and you were to stop somebody on the street and ask them, what is Christianity? He said, chances are you're going to get one of three answers, all of which incidentally are wrong. But you'll understand why they would be logical answers in the minds of many people, particularly in our secular culture today. The first misconception that many people have about Christianity is that Christianity at its heart and its soul is really a creed. That is a statement of belief, uh, oftentimes a statement of doctrines or convictions. And there's certainly no denying the fact that Christianity has a creed. In fact, it has multiple creeds. We say two of them in church on a regular basis. Uh, during morning prayer, we stand up and we state the Apostles' Creed. And during Holy Communion, we stand up and say the Nicene Creed. Those are two ancient creeds of the church. They are meant to explain to the culture what the church believes, and not only what the church believes, but what the church does not believe. Uh, the creeds were developed in a time when there was a great deal of opposition or confusion to some of the gospel teachings. And so the church felt it necessary to clarify. And the creeds define what it means in its most basic sense to believe as a Christian. So the creeds are important. They, they state not only what Christians believe, but what they don't believe. But while the creeds are a part of Christianity, they are not the essence of Christianity. And here's why. It is perfectly possible for a person to believe every article of the creed, everything that the creed says, to stand up every Sunday, profess their faith in the words of the creed without having to cross their fingers and still miss the heart of Christianity. Now, if you don't believe me, all you have to do is turn to the New Testament and you find examples of people who were very orthodox in their theology. The Pharisees in particular. Now, the Pharisees were not doubters. They were not skeptics. The Pharisees believed every aspect of the law. They believed in miracles. They believed that God acted in history. We would say that they were the conservatives of their day. And yet you know that Jesus ran afoul of the Pharisees on a regular basis. He referred to them as whited sepulchers, whitewashed tombs, polished and impressive on the outside, he said, but on the inside filled with dead men's bones and every kind of evil. Now, that is a harsh critique. But we would have said that they would have believed the creed of Judaism. Well, there are many people today who stand up in church on Sunday, and they believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. They believe that he did rise bodily from the dead. They even believe that he is coming again. But it's possible to believe all these things and still miss the heart of Christianity. The second misconception that John Stott said many people have is that Christianity at its heart is merely a code of conduct. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to act in a certain way. It means to follow the Ten Commandments, or it means to live your life according to the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Stott points out that certainly Christians do have a code of conduct. As a matter of fact, we have the highest ethic imaginable. We are to love our neighbors and even love our enemies in the same way that Christ loved us. Christians are expected to live a holy life. And one might even go so far as to say that one of the greatest liabilities in the church today is the fact that Christians don't, as they once said a few years back, they don't walk the walk. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. 
So how we conduct our lives, certainly that is an important aspect of the Christian life. But being moral is not enough. It's possible to live a very moral life, to be a good person in the eyes of the world, and still miss the heart of Christianity. Let's be honest, there are very uh, many what we would call moral atheists in the world today. They may be good people in the eyes of the culture, but they don't subscribe to Christianity. So to say that Christianity at its heart is a creed, well, that's part of it, but that's not the essence. To say that Christianity at its heart is a code of conduct, there's no denying the fact that we have a code of conduct, but that's not the essence of Christianity. Now, the third misconception that somebody on the street might have regarding Christianity is that if Christianity is not at its heart a creed, and if it's not at its heart a code of conduct, then perhaps Christianity is a cult. Now, when I use that word cult, I don't mean that in the modern sense. I'm not talking about the Branch Davidians or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. That word cult is an old word, which means a collection of religious ceremonies. And some people would say at its heart, that's what Christianity is. It is a collection of religious ceremonies. And again, that is a part of Christianity. We have a creed, we do have a code of conduct, and we have a host of religious ceremonies. We Anglicans in particular have all kinds of ceremonies and rites and practices. We have Holy Communion, we have morning prayer, we have baptism, we have marriage, we have all of these things, the rites and ceremonies of the church and the sacraments of the church. And those are important. But let me tell you something. It is possible to engage in all of those things. To come to church faithfully, to say the prayers on your knees, to receive the sacraments, and still miss the heart of Christianity. Now, the example that Stott uses here from history, and it's one that I've used before, but it's a very good one. It's a perfect one, is the example of John Wesley. John Wesley was one of the greatest evangelists and preachers of the 18th century. He was a priest in the Church of England, and he eventually became the founder of Methodism. But if you know the story of John Wesley's life, and it's a very interesting story, one of the things that you'll discover is that there was a long period where he was faithful in all of these things. He was faithful in terms of the creed, faithful in terms of his code of conduct, faithful in terms of his church attendance, and yet he would have told you that he had, for all those years, missed the heart of Christianity. Let me just tell you a little bit about John Wesley. Wesley grew up in a churched family, and this is just a reminder to us all that God has no grandchildren. Nobody gets into heaven simply by connection to a godly family. But John Wesley came from a godly family. As a matter of fact, his father was a clergyman in the Church of England. He was the rector of a well-known congregation. And in a day when women didn't always fulfill this role, his mother was sought after as a well-known spiritual advisor. So his family were very devout. They were very much involved in the church, his father, as I said, being a minister. Wesley was raised, steeped in the traditions of the Church of England. He went off to Oxford University, a very bright student, and there at Oxford, he trained for the priesthood. In fact, while he was there, he actually founded an organization. He founded what was known as the Holy 
club. Now, can you imagine going to Clemson University or uh, the University of South Carolina or any other secular university or state university like that and uh, encouraging young freshmen to join the Holy Club? Uh, very few undergraduates are probably interested in that when they head off to college. But nevertheless, that's what Wesley did. He founded what was known as a Holy Club. He devoted himself to the study of the scriptures. As a matter of fact, he memorized the entire Psalter. The entire book of Psalms, he memorized the entire thing, word for word. He was also faithful in terms of caring for the poor and the downcast. In an age when debtors were oftentimes thrown into prison or those who were mentally ill had no place to go but were thrown out on the street, John Wesley cared for their needs. He went into the worst sections of London and ministered to the needs of the downtrodden and the forgotten. As I said, he graduated from Oxford University. He was ordained by the Bishop of Oxford, and uh, he decided to become a missionary. He came here to the United States. What well, wasn't the United States then? It was still a, a colony of England, but he came here to America, and uh, he went to the colony of Georgia. He went there, he said, to convert the heathen. And he must have thought that the area around Cockspur Island or Savannah, Georgia, was a good place to begin converting the heathen. And he went there, and he preached, and he taught, and he founded the mother church of what became the Diocese of Georgia, Christ Church Savannah. If you've ever been there, it's a beautiful church. Well, the first pastor of that church was John Wesley. He was later followed by George Whitfield. So this was a church that had a distinguished history. So Wesley appeared to be a man who was on the upswing. He appeared to be dedicated and yet he was a man that had a deep sense of unsettledness. Uh, he actually got into trouble there while he was in Georgia. Uh, he met a young woman who became interested in him, and he strung her along. He strung her along and, and um, uh, played with her a little bit, and uh, she became so frustrated that she left Savannah, and she returned sometime later, and when she returned, she came back with a husband. And Wesley was so upset about this that when she presented herself for Holy Communion, he refused to give it to her. He excommunicated her in the presence of the entire congregation only because he was frustrated about the fact that she didn't wait for him. Now, in those days, that was a serious charge in Georgia. The Church of England was the state church. He was not only an officer of the church, but an officer of the state, and he had humiliated a member of the congregation and the community. The result was that Wesley had to flee Savannah. And guess where he came? He came here to Charleston. And the rector of St. Philip's helped him get on a ship and pass back to England. And it was while he was returning to England that he met a group of Moravian Christians. Now, he had met them on the way over as well. They were coming back and forth. But at some point during his journey, he met these Moravian Christians. They were basically Lutheran in their theology, and they were very impressed with Wesley, very impressed with the fact that he could read Greek and Hebrew and Latin, very impressed with his knowledge of the Scriptures, but they detected a defect in his faith. They could tell that he knew a great deal about God, but the problem for Wesley was that he didn't seem to know God, and they said so. And Wesley was greatly troubled by that because he could sense in his spirit that they were right. 
He knew a great deal about God. He could tell you everything about the Old Testament. He could tell you everything about the New Testament. He was following all the rules, all the regulations, doing everything, crossing every T, dotting every I, and yet somehow he knew that they were right. He could tell that there was a spirituality about them, a peace, a tranquility that he simply did not have. And this brought him almost to the point of despair. When he returned to London, he didn't know what to do with himself. He said, I discovered that I had gone to America to convert the heathen, and lo and behold, I myself had not been converted. Well, the story goes that one day he was wandering through the Aldersgate section of London, and he happened upon a little Moravian chapel. And remembering his encounter with the Moravians, he went in. And he heard the minister reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to the Romans. And he said, as I listened to the words, I heard the gospel for the first time, not merely with my ears, but with my mind, with my heart. And he said, I found my heart strangely warmed. And that's when everything changed. It changed for Wesley. He discovered that it wasn't enough to know about God if you didn't know God personally. Well, my friends, that is the essence of Christianity. And that is exactly what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. What does he say? He says, for me to live is Christ. Paul had been raised as a Pharisee. He doesn't say, for me to live is the law. He doesn't say, for me to live is to care for the widowed and the orphaned, as important as that is. He doesn't say, for me to live is to attend the temple. He says, for me to live is Christ. The whole of life, the whole of my existence, Paul had discovered, was the person of Jesus Christ. And I submit to you that that is really the essence of Christianity. I'm not asking you the question today, do you know about God? I'm not asking you if you're a churchgoer. I'm not asking you if you've been confirmed or baptized or gone through all the rites and ceremonies of the church. It is possible to have done all of those things. Wesley didn't just do one or two of them. He did them all. He was orthodox in his theology, faithful in his conduct. In church, every single time the doors were open, and yet somehow there was something missing in his life. There are many people like that today. I call them churched, but unconverted. At the heart of Christianity, it's not a teaching. It's a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to say that to me to live is Christ? What does Paul mean there? When we say that the heart and soul of Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ, what do we mean by that? Well, Paul would have meant three things in particular. First, he would have meant, and this is the most obvious, faith in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and not by works, so that no man may boast. To be a Christian and to see Christ as the center of it all means to have faith in Christ. Now, faith here doesn't simply mean believing in Christ. That is to say, believing that Christ actually existed, or believing that Christ really was who he claimed to be. Again, 
Wesley believed all of those things prior to that strange warming of his heart. He believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that Jesus Christ was crucified for his sins. He understood that Jesus Christ was raised for his justification, and he believed that Jesus Christ was going to come again to judge the quick and the dead. He believed all of that. Again, he could say the creed without crossing his fingers. He believed in Christ. What he discovered, however, was that he had never really believed on Christ. It was all an intellectual exercise. To have faith in Christ was actually to trust in Christ, to put his whole confidence for his very life and his very soul on Christ. And the only way I know how to, to illustrate this is to say it's like a parachute. If you're up in an airplane and the plane begins to have difficulty and there is a parachute in the back, as long as the plane is flying along, you can believe in the parachute. That is to say, theoretically, you believe that it has the potential to save you in the event that you need it. But that is very different, my friends, from strapping that parachute on and throwing your body at 20,000 feet out of the airplane. At that point, you can't just believe in the parachute. You have to believe on the parachute. That's what it means to have faith in Christ. It means you are trusting Him. You have absolute confidence in Him. When Paul says, for me to live as Christ, that is exactly what Paul had done. Look at what he says here. He says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. We live in a culture in which most people do everything in their power to prolong their life on this earth and avoid the prospect of death. because we fear death. Even though we may profess that we believe in the life of the world to come, when we live our lives here, we have a tendency to hold tenaciously to this earth. And let me tell you something, I have discovered that's not simply true of the young, it's also true of the old. People who have lived 90 years, almost 100 years, they've had a rich and full life, and yet nevertheless, they hold tenaciously to this life. So even though they say that they believe in the life of the world to come, the way they live indicates that they believe that this life is all there is. How many of us can say what Paul said here, for to me to live is Christ and to die is to gain? That's part of what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the first aspect of being a Christian, faith in Christ, really faith on Christ, absolute confidence, trust in Him. Here's the second element, though, of being in Christ, and that is fellowship with Christ. Uh, keep your finger there in Philippians and turn to the right to 1 John. It's really close to the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. And listen to how John describes this. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John is saying, we have proclaimed to you the good news, the gospel, so that you may have two things, 
one, fellowship with us. That is, you may become a part of our community. You may have a relationship with us, but not just a relationship with us, but he says, indeed, our relationship, our fellowship is what? With the Father and his Son. You know, there are some people that when you meet them, they talk about Jesus Christ in such intimate terms, you would think that they had just spent an hour with him before they met you on the street. And oftentimes that's because they have. They have spent time with Christ. They have been in his presence. Let me ask that question. Do you have that kind of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have that kind of fellowship, that kind of relationship with him? That, that you are as close to Jesus Christ as you are to your spouse or to your brother or to your sister or to your friend or your neighbor? Now, you might ask the question, well, how do you get to that point? How, how do you engage in fellowship with God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth? Here we are, finite creatures. God is the infinite Lord of the universe. How do you and I engage in fellowship with him? He's so lofty, so transcendent, so, so distant. There are three aspects to fellowship with Christ. The first is, as in any relationship, you've got to engage in conversation. Oftentimes I discover in marriages that are having a hard time that one of the primary difficulties is a failure to communicate. I always say that there are four C's to a successful marriage. One of them is communication. Communication. The other three C's are commonality, commitment, and Jesus Christ. But communication is one of the primary problems in any relationship. That is, people grow older, they sometimes grow apart, and there's a failure to communicate. If you are going to have a deep, lasting, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that feeds your soul, you've got to spend time with him, talking to him. And this is why prayer is absolutely essential. And let me just say something about prayer. Because many people who are new to the Christian faith, even people who have been raised in the church, particularly in our tradition, where we have these wonderful, ancient, and rich prayers, and because we're liturgical, we're accustomed to reading from the book. Let me say about prayer, God is not interested in how eloquent or flowery your prayers are. He doesn't expect you to simply pray prayer book prayers. What God is concerned with is your heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. God wants you to talk to him in the way that you talk to your brother or your sister. He already knows your heart anyway. And so talking to God, spending time in prayer, this is one of the greatest deficiencies in many people's lives when it comes to Christianity. They fail to spend time in prayer. As it's been said, more is wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. So if you're going to have fellowship with Christ, the first thing that is required is that you spend time talking to Him. But I like to say that when it comes to a relationship with God and a conversation with God, it's sometimes best to let Him do most of the talking. You know those people, it's always a one-way conversation. They have everything that they want to say to you, 
but they're not good receivers. They're good transmitters, but they're not good receivers. Well, I want to suggest to you that in any relationship, it's got to be a two-way street. Yes, we need to talk to God, but this is not like going through a fast food line where you simply place your order, pay your tithe, and then pick up your order. That's not the way it is with God. What's going to be the state of your relationship if the only time you go to a friend is when you need something? So you need to spend time praying to God, talking to God, but also allowing God to speak to you. And the primary means by which he does this, and I've said this many times before, not the only means, but it is the primary means by which God speaks to us is through his word. That's the point of studying the scriptures. Now, that's not to say that God cannot speak to you through C.S. Lewis, but he doesn't promise to do that. That's not to say that God can't speak to you through one of the great hymns of the church. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. That's a wonderful hymn. And it's not to say that God can't speak to you through it, but he doesn't promise to. And that doesn't mean that God can't speak to you through the words of the preacher. I am very happy that he does, otherwise I wouldn't have a job. But he doesn't promise to. What he does promise to speak through is his word. That's the reason we call the Bible his word. It's God's word. It is God speaking to us through the scriptures. If you want to hear God speak, and people will sometimes say that, I just want to hear God speak to me, then read his word. The English reformers used to say, of all the relics left on earth, you know, one of the reasons why the reformers rebelled against the Roman church in the medieval period was because of the indulgences and the relics and all of that sort of thing. And John Jewell, who was one of the great lights of the English Reformation, said the greatest relic left on earth is not the finger of Peter or the shin bone of Catherine. He said the greatest relic on earth is God's word. God's holy word. He speaks to us through the scriptures. So if you're going to have fellowship with Christ, which is the essence of Christianity, a person, not a collection of ceremonies or a code of conduct or a creed, if you're going to have fellowship with Christ, you need to talk to him. You need to allow him to talk to you. And here's the third thing that is required. You need to spend time with God's family. You need to spend time with his family. It's in getting to know him through his family that you will grow. You cannot be a Christian in isolation. Indeed, that's one of the dangers of this present pandemic. I know that many people are, are enjoying the live streaming services, and the live streaming services are a blessing, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to continue to preach and to teach the word. And so I am delighted that people can participate via the live stream. But it's really interesting to hear how people describe it. They said, I really enjoyed watching church. They watch church in the same way that they watch the football game or in the same way that they watch you know, some show on PBS. It's not the same thing, my friends, as being in person, in fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean that in every family you don't have quirky individuals. We all recognize that you do. 
And sometimes iron sharpens iron and there are sparks, but it is nevertheless in the context of fellowship. It's in the context of the family that God causes us to grow in grace. So as soon as you can, as soon as you can get your vaccinations and get back to church, let me encourage you to do so because there is no substitute for being in the community of faith. It is the most sanctifying circumstance that you can find yourself in. So Paul says, at the heart of Christianity is not a creed, a code of conduct, or a cult. It's the person of Christ. And to be in a relationship with Christ involves trusting in Christ, spending time with Christ in which you speak to him and he speaks to you, and it also involves being engaged with his family. Now, here's the third aspect of having that intimate relationship with Christ. Faith in him, fellowship with him, following Christ. Following Christ. Turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 1. And I want to show you two incidents that I think illustrate this point. Mark chapter 1. This is the very beginning of Mark's version of the gospel. You know that Mark's version of the gospel is a little more succinct than the other gospels. John has that magnificent prologue about the pre-existent logos, the word. Matthew and Luke have those um, stories of Jesus' childhood and his birth. Mark actually begins 30 years into Jesus' life. He begins with the baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. So it's a very succinct. As far as Mark is concerned, it's not that he's unaware of these other stories. It's just as far as he's concerned, the rubber really hits the road when Jesus begins his public ministry. And one of the first incidents at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry was the calling of disciples. And we have that in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, what? Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, presumably the same words, follow me. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Now skip ahead a chapter to Mark chapter 2. We have the calling of another disciple, Matthew or Levi, who was a tax collector. Chapter 2, verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, what? Follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. To be in Christ, to have a personal relationship with Christ, to not merely know about him, but to know him personally involves trusting him, spending time with him, and being willing to follow him. And sometimes, in order to follow Christ, you have to turn around. You have to do a 180. You have to begin going in an opposite direction. And sometimes, following Christ can be 
costly. It means to put him first. In the case of Peter and Andrew, they gave up their nets, we're told. Immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him. Their nets represented their livelihood. These men were fishermen. That represented putting Christ even before their jobs, their careers. In the case of James and John, the sacrifice was even greater. We're told they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Now, this one is challenging for South Carolinians and Charlestonians. Why? Because there are deep family ties. I remember when I first moved to Charleston, coming from Pennsylvania, and didn't know a whole lot about the city. I met a person who had, uh, had family ties that went way back um, into the 17th century here in Charleston. And I said, what, what, are, what are Charlestonians like? And he said, well, they're a lot like the Chinese. He said, they love rice and they worship their ancestors. Well, there's nothing wrong with being proud of your family heritage, nothing being wrong with, with having a distinguished family history and wanting to live up to that. That's a wonderful heritage to have, certainly better than having nothing but, but pirates in your background. So that's a wonderful thing. But what is interesting is that to follow Christ sometimes means turning your back even on family family who are perhaps not interested in the gospel or perhaps hostile to the gospel. It is a painful thing to have to sever ties if necessary. But what you find is that James and John were prepared to put Christ first before everyone else. And that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, few of us are actually going to have to make those kinds of sacrifices. But sometimes it is necessary. There are times when becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is costly. I can tell you this from my own life. My father's side of the family, initially at least, was not happy about the fact that I was going to be a clergyman. I remember when I was getting ready to graduate from college, and my father took me out to lunch one day, and he said, what are you going to do with your life? I mean, you're graduating from college. What are your plans? And I told him I was going off to seminary. He was absolutely appalled. And other members of my family were appalled as well. They, they thought that that was a waste of time, a waste of energy. Why would anybody want to do that? There's no money in that. There's no future in that. And I remember going off to seminary and, and not really having anybody that was really encouraging me. My mother did but she was the exception, and it was lonely. Now, I'm happy to say that my father's side of the family, my father and my grandmother, eventually warmed to the idea. But initially, it was a costly thing for me. It was not only costly, it was a lonely thing to do. And sometimes following Jesus Christ is costly and lonely. It can be difficult but it is the way that leads to eternal life. But before you get to eternal life, following Christ leads to something else. What does it lead to? Well, it leads to death, my friends. To follow Christ means to die to self, to die to your own hopes, your own dreams, your own plans, your own agenda. It means to be willing to put him first. You know, we all want the crown, my friends, but you never get the crown until you first get the cross. 
then there is the crown. But it means dying to self. Many people are not prepared to set aside their dreams, their hopes, their agenda for Christ. Paul was. And in so doing, what he discovered was the peace which the world had never known. He discovered such peace, such joy, such hope in Christ Jesus that to die was not a tragedy. To die was to gain. Why? It was to be with Christ in a more intimate, more life-giving way. My prayer for all of us is that we will get to that point where Paul was, to discover that in Jesus Christ is everything we could hope for and everything that we need. This is one of those verses that you should highlight in your Bible. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when Paul says, for me to live is Christ, he meant all of life. He viewed every aspect of life through the lens of Jesus Christ. He couldn't help but do it. If you've ever been in love at any point in your life, you know that that's the lens through which you view everything. And that first blush of new life and love, you view everything through that lens. The whole world takes on a completely different hue. That's the way it was for Paul. He viewed life through the lens of his relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to really be a Christian. And because Paul viewed all of life through the person of Jesus Christ, he inevitably walked out of step with this world. He discovered that death really wasn't all that bad. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul went out and actively sought death. No. But it does mean that he didn't fear it. He walked out of step with the world. The story that I like to use to illustrate walking out of step with this world took place uh, after the American Civil War in a little town in Rockbridge County, Virginia called Lexington. Now, the story I'm going to tell is about a man whose reputation, unfortunately, has fallen on hard times in our day and age. But he's still, nevertheless, a man that I, I find to be very admirable. So take that for what it's worth. But following the surrender at Appomattox in April of 1865, Robert E. Lee retired to a small town in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia called Lexington. He was offered a job there of a small struggling college called Washington College. It had been founded by money that had been bequeathed by George Washington. And in the wake of the, the war, um, the student body was just a shadow of what it had been in the prior years. But the uh, Washington College campus adjoined the campus of another school that was also struggling, actually rebuilding. And that was the Virginia Military Institute. In fact, if you visit Lexington today and go to Washington and Lee University is what it's called now, you will see that the campus literally adjoins the campus of the Virginia Military Institute. You literally walk from one campus right into the next. And in those post-war years, when Lee was the president of Washington College, they would have a joint graduation ceremony because they didn't have huge student bodies. And most of the men, and those were both all-male schools in those days, 
because they had a small student body, they would have a joint graduation ceremony. And because most of the students had been soldiers in the army, they were accustomed to that sort of military drill. And so every year they would march up the hill, the student body from VMI and the student body from Washington College, everybody in perfect step behind a brass band. Everybody in perfect step, except for one individual, Robert E. Lee. For whatever reason, Lee insisted upon walking out of step with everybody else. And finally, somebody went up and, and asked him why. They, they knew Lee's reputation. He'd been a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. While he was there, he graduated second in his class. He never received a single demerit in four years. That was extraordinary. Not a single demerit in four years. And he had become one of the world's most famous soldiers. Why was it that he would not walk in step with everybody else? And here's what Lee replied. He said, I am not a soldier anymore. I used to be a soldier, but now I'm a teacher. I walk out of step with that world. Well, you know, that's the way that we are supposed to be as Christians. We're not to march lockstep with the world. We are to be out of step with the world. And nowhere should this be more evident than when it comes to the prospect of death. We'll do everything in our power to avoid it, I understand. But I've got some bad news for you folks. Nobody's getting out of here alive. We all have an inevitable appointment with the grave. Is it something that we fear? Or is it something that we don't necessarily seek, but we know may not be so bad? Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is to gain. Keep your finger there in Hebrews, uh, in Mark, excuse, excuse me, Philippians, and turn, if you will, to the book of Hebrews. This is not Paul writing. This is another author. We're not exactly sure who the author of Hebrews is. There's been a great deal of speculation, but it is a biblical book. It is a book that we believe is, is the word of the Lord. And here's what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same things. In other words, you and I are flesh and blood. We're subject to all the things that flesh and blood are subject to, disease, disappointment, death. And Christ, out of compassion for us, what? Took on flesh. He became like us so that through death, listen to this, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that he might deliver all those who through fear of death. How many of you fear death? Be honest, don't raise your hands, but how many of you fear death? Fear the prospect of the grave? That's slavery, isn't it? It's a kind of bondage. 
And the author of Hebrews is saying that Christ came, took on our flesh, and died that you and I might be emancipated from that fear, liberated from that fear, and given the hope of eternal life. You know, if you think about it, there are death benefits for the Christian. Paul understood what those death benefits are. You know that there are certain death benefits. When a person dies, they, if, if their spouse has a, a life insurance policy, they receive a death benefit. Well, Paul obviously believed that there were death benefits. How, after all, how else could he say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Why would death be a gain? Well, there are a number of reasons. First of all, Paul believed that death was an improvement over the best things in life. Paul did not view death as a substitute for the worst things in this life. You know, that's oftentimes the way we think of it. We think of suffering and pain and disease, and so we speak of death as a mercy for some people. Somebody, for example, who's been suffering for years with Alzheimer's, a loved one, and we say that that death came as a mercy. And indeed, it may be. But Paul never saw death as an improvement over the worst things in life. He actually saw death as an improvement over the best things in life. Think about that. Whatever is best in this life, it's going to even be better in the life of the world to come. It's going to be amplified. It's going to be intensified. I think there were a number of things that Paul would have said, and the other New Testament writers would have said are death benefits for the Christian. The first is this. We are finally, finally going to be freed from all evil. It's really interesting. Paul uses the word depart here in Philippians. He said, it is my desire to depart. The word literally means to break camp. Break camp. It means to leave behind and go on to a new place. That is exactly what we do. We, we leave behind this world, but we're moving on to a better world. It means freedom from evil, from all of the things that this life has that are so corruptible. We leave those things behind. So for Paul, it's, it, it's, it's a freedom from evil from all the things that are dark and disruptive in this life. It's a freedom from sin. Augustine described it in terms of a series of Latin phrases. St. Augustine said that man, prior to the fall, you know the story in Genesis chapter 3 of the fall of Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman. He said prior to the fall, they were passe pacare. It means they were able to sin. First man and woman were given free will, free choice. They were placed in a garden paradise. They were told they could eat of any tree in the garden except the one in the midst of the garden. If they ate of that tree, they would die. So they were made passe picari, able to sin. They hadn't yet, but they were capable of it. Free choice. He said, but after they ate of that tree, they became non passe, non picari not able not to sin, not able not to sin. 
No matter how hard they tried, they kept falling into it again. And you know it's a downhill spiral. The way Genesis describes it, they have children, and one of those children kills the other. Cain kills Abel. Try as they might, they could not break free. They had entered into a kind of bondage. They had been able to sin. Now they were not able not to sin. He says, but then when Christ came, Augustine said, when Christ came and enters your life, you become passe non peccari, able not to sin. Doesn't mean you won't, but it means you're able not to sin. Why? Because it's the power of the Holy Spirit living in your life. But even Christians we know fall into sin. The very things we want to do, we don't do. The very things we hate, these are the things we find ourselves doing, oh, wretched men and women that we are, who will deliver us. Well, Augustine says one day we will be delivered. Ultimately, we will be delivered when we are with Christ, when we pass from this life, when we cross over the Jordan, as it were, into that life of the world to come, we will become non passe peccari, not able to sin. Perfection. Isn't that what we long for? To have the freedom to do what we were not able to do non posse peccari. So one of the death benefits for being a Christian is freedom from evil, all of the corruption of this world, freedom from sin. We will not be able to sin. Here's the, well, the best benefit, in my opinion, of being a follower of Christ. One of the best death benefits is to be like Christ, to be made into the image of Christ. That's the essence of salvation, my friends, to be truly glorious, truly beautiful in every respect like him in his righteousness, like him in his knowledge, like him in his love. Now, when I say like him in his knowledge, I'm not saying that we will know everything, but we will certainly know more than we know now. How did Paul say? We see through a glass darkly, but then we shall know, we shall see face to face. To love purely without any alloy, to be like Christ in purity, purity of mind, purity of heart, purity of action. And here's the final death benefit for the Christian. Freedom from evil, freedom from sin, Christ-likeness, and finally just the presence of being with him. John chapter 14 is what is commonly referred to as the farewell discourse because that section of John's gospel contains some of the final words that Jesus spoke to his disciples just prior to his crucifixion. He spoke the words on the very night of the Last Supper. And one of the things that Jesus said was, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. To be with Christ never to be separated from him, to be one day with him for eternity. That is the greatest benefit of all, my friends, freed from evil, freed from sin, Christ-like, and having no fear of anything, for we will be with that one who is the good shepherd and the bishop of our souls. The best description, I think, of what heaven is going to be like that I have read. There are all kinds of descriptions out there, but sometimes fiction captures it better than anything else. 
And the best description that I know of, of what heaven may be like, and one of the reasons why we should not fear the loss of this life, but even be able to look forward to the life of the world to come, is provided by C.S. Lewis. Hat tip to Brian McGreevy. It's in the last of the Chronicles of Narnia, which many people regard as children's books, but there is so much there, even for adults. But the children have had all of these adventures in this marvelous place called Narnia. And they have encountered this great lion, Aslan, who represents Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. And the children get the sense as they're coming to the end of this last book that their adventures in Narnia are about to end. And they're going to be sent back into their own world. You see, they live in England, but from time to time, something will pull them into this other world. In the first book, they pass through a wardrobe, the back of a wardrobe into this magical land and have all of these wonderful adventures. But they always have to be sent back into their own world. And they're fearful that they're going to be sent back into their own world, which is called the Shadowlands. And having had all of these adventures, they don't want to go back. And here's how Lewis describes it. Last page, last book of the Chronicles. Aslan says, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. And you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is mourning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read. The great story which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this one verse from Philippians. It sums up the essence of Christianity. Christianity is not a creed. It's not a code of conduct. It's not merely a collection of religious ceremonies. It is a person. It is having a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. 
And the deeper we go into fellowship with him, the more time we spend with him in prayer, the more we study his word, the more we spend time with his family members, the more we fall in love with him. And the things of this world, as the old hymn says, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So that we no longer feel drawn to this world, but we long to be with him in that place where the story goes on forever and which each chapter is better than the one before. Thank you, Lord, for this word. May it be true in our lives. It was true in the life of the Apostle Paul. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. We will see you in a couple of weeks. I hope that you'll be joining us for the services during Holy Week, the ones that we are capable of broadcasting, and certainly joining us for Good Friday and for Easter, the two most important days in the church calendar. Um, many people pay attention to Easter. They don't pay attention to Good Friday. Let me just say something about a resurrection. Tricky thing about a resurrection, in order for somebody to come back from the dead, they have to first die. Good Friday and Easter are two sides of the same coin. Come and join us at least for those two days. In the meantime, God bless you. Take care. We'll see you soon.